Hello and welcome to this rare and unique version of King's Cross Church of San Diego's podcast. The reason why this is rare and unique is because I am um, doing our Sunday sermon um, using a podcast um, format. And the reason why is last Sunday we had some technical difficulties and because of this, we were not able to record um, the audio for our Sunday sermon. And so um, I wanted to get the message to you. And so you didn't miss a week. And so thought I'd do, um, I'd record the sermon in a, um, a podcast style. And so, yeah, let's get right to it. Um, Mark chapter eight, Mark chapter eight. And we are going to be looking at verses 1 to 13, verses 1 to 13. Um, I'm going to read the passage and I'm going to pray and we're going to get right into it. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he, that is Jesus, called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come far from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the crowd. And they set them before the crowd and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. All right, let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this time. We're thankful for your scriptures. And we're also thankful for Jesus. And as we zero in and study this um, portion from the life of Jesus, may we continually be in awe of who he is and all that he's done for us. Um, give us eyes to see and ears to hear all that you want us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, some of you know that I am a creature of habit. Um, what this means is that I stick to a strict daily routine. Um, Most days I wake up at the same time, go to the same coffee shop, sit in the same seat, order the same drink. And sometimes because of my 
um, repeated strict daily routines, I get the feeling of deja vu um, many days. You know, deja vu is that weird trippy feeling, the feeling that you've been somewhere or said something or did something already and are repeating it. And I'm sure most of you listening um, have had those deja vu moments. And so as we've been studying the life of Jesus through the gospel, um, according to Mark, we've been exposed often to the compelling yet controversial life of Jesus the Christ. He has surprised us. He's shocked us, he's wowed us, and he's stirred our emotions because Jesus is unpredictable. But the story we're about to look at will feel like deja vu. It'll feel like we've been here before. It'll feel like it's a repeated scene from the life of Jesus. But a closer look will prove otherwise. The situation may be familiar, but it's different. And so let's look at this true story and on earth what we can learn from it. Last time we were in Mark, Jesus and his disciples were in a region called the Decapolis. This means that he's outside of Israel and he's located in a Gentile region. This is the same region he met a man who was deaf and couldn't speak properly and ended up healing him. Look at verse 1. It says, In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat. So what we can learn from this verse 1 is that Jesus' popularity was never limited by a location. And so even though he is in a predominantly Gentile area, Jesus is still a magnet for large crowds. People are coming to him from all over the place. They're traveling many miles on foot from every city, every neighborhood, by the thousands, eager to see and hear from this controversial yet yet compelling rabbi from Nazareth. And as they indulge his teaching and are wowed by his miracles, they soon discover that they had nothing to eat. There's a food shortage and this dilemma has put the thousands who have gathered to see and hear Jesus at risk. We're not entirely sure how this shortage of food came about. It's possible that many in the crowd would have brought food, but they may not have brought enough for three days. It may have been poor planning on their part, or they just didn't plan to stay as long as they did. And so over the course of three days, of course, they run out of food. Also, some of them may not have brought any food at all. Their initial excitement to be with Jesus made them forget the the needed amount of food. And so Jesus, aware of this issue, then calls an emergency meeting with his disciples and says to them in verse 2, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. 
regardless of how they ended up in this dilemma, Jesus's response is that of compassion. He's moved by compassion for the needs of the people. He feels a deep sympathy, pity, and wants to extend kindness towards them. This crowd have been with him for three days and there's no description of them demanding anything. In fact, the phrase, they have been with me, suggests that they simply have been with Jesus. They've simply wanted to be in his presence. Nothing more, nothing less. To be with Jesus was enough for them. And so after three days, the food supply is next to nothing. And rather than leaving them to figure out a solution for themselves, Jesus takes on the responsibility to provide for their needs. Because if he doesn't, if he sends them away to their homes without feeding them, verse 3 lets us know that some of them are not going to make it home. Some will faint, collapse and even starve to death because they're in the middle of nowhere and they're many miles from the nearest restaurant or grocery store. And so Jesus, because he's a compassionate saviour, because he's a compassionate Lord, cares about their basic needs. And he doesn't only care about the basic needs of citizens in the ancient world. He continues to have compassion on those who follow him. Jesus, right now, as you're listening to this podcast, is currently aware and sensitive to all your needs. And he's still committed to meeting all of your needs. And in prayer, he wants you to let him know about your need. I love Philippians chapter 4 verse 6. Love it so much. And it says... Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. N.T. writes, um, who's a British scholar, um, comments on this um, Philippians 4, 6. He says, such prayer receives strong and warm encouragement from knowing that the risen Jesus certainly came for his people, at least as much in his glorified state as he had done when sharing our earthly existence. Jesus cares about you. He cares about your basic needs. And as he cared for 4,000 Gentiles, that is non-Jewish people, thousands of years ago when he was um, on this earth. Um, he cares the same for you. Also, it's interesting to see that Jesus has compassion on Gentiles. He shows compassion. Uh, uh, he's compassionate towards those who are not his people. As we strive to be like Jesus, let us seek to extend compassion and kindness to everyone. Um, as we seek to be like Jesus, let us seek to display kindness, not only to friends and family and our Christian brothers and sisters, but to everyone who has need. And so, how does his disciples respond to this dilemma? 
Um, and let's, let's remember, as we look at this, they've been in this exact situation before. Um, a few chapters ago, March 6, they encountered the same issue. They were followed by a large crowd to a desolate place. And when it got late, they suggested Jesus send the crowds away so they can go get some food to eat. They were then challenged by Jesus to feed the people. They only had a small amount of food. And there was no way they could feed over 5,000 people with what they had. But Jesus ended up miraculously feeding many people with the little they had. And so in a foreign land, in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by a large crowd, the disciples find themselves in a similar situation. It's a deja vu moment for them. So how do they respond? Look at verse 4. The disciples answered Jesus by asking, How can we, um, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? In other words, what they're saying is, Hey, Jesus, we're in the middle of nowhere here, and the nearest restaurant or grocery store is many miles away. How can you provide enough food for all these people to eat? Jesus hoped they would remember his past faithfulness as a promise to meet their present need. But unfortunately, his disciples respond almost the same way the last time there was a shortage of food. And this all doesn't make sense at all. And it doesn't make sense because time and time again, Jesus has proved to be faithful to them. He never let them down when they were um, on a boat about to drown in the midst of the most extreme um, waves and storm. Jesus um, helped them and calmed the storm. Um, not too long ago, Jesus was able to feed 5,000, over 5,000 people. Um, with five loads of bread and two fish. And so Jesus has never let them down, but they respond exactly the same way to the same situation to which Jesus provided a miraculous solution not too long ago. It seems like they have forgotten. Okay, it seems like they're doubting, but what if they're not forgetful? What if Mark, the author of this biography of Jesus, wants us to see something a bit more subtle here? Maybe the reason for doubt has more to do with the kinds of people involved rather than whether Jesus can repeat a miracle or not. One author says it this way. He says, if the disciples had any doubts about what was about to happen, it was not Jesus's power they questioned, but his purpose. Look at verse four again. It says, how can one feed these people? Emphasis on these, not just people, these kinds of people, these Gentiles, people whom the Jews considered to be unclean. And this is because as legit Jews, they held to the belief that it was against their law, it was forbidden for Jews, Jewish people to eat with Gentiles. The disciples are all good with Jesus feeding over 5,000 Jewish people, but for him to do the same for Gentiles made them not only uncomfortable, 
but made them believe it was impossible. Yet, despite their prejudice and doubt, Jesus uses this opportunity to teach them a vital lesson. And that is the message of salvation is not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentile. It's to, it's to spread from his chosen people to every nation. Jesus wanted them to start recognizing that the gospel was a message for the whole world, for every tribe, tongue and nation. And Jesus wants us to recognize the same thing. As Jesus followers, there's no place for a prejudiced mindset that mostly views people based on their class, clothing, race, education or other factors. Prejudice is something we're all plagued with. Uh, um, we all have preferences. We all prefer one group of people over another. But the gospel confronts our prejudice attitude and mindset and reminds us that the gospel is not limited to a race or a social class but it's available for all the gospel is available for the homeless for the unattractive for the attractive for the rich and famous for the high class for the low class and every race and every social status it's for the old it's for the young the gospel is for the hipsters in North Park, the homeless and hippies in OB. The gospel is for the party crowd in PB. The gospel is for the minorities and refugees in the City Heights area. The gospel is not only for a particular group of people. The gospel is also for the medical students in UTC and the gospel is for the upper class and educated in La Jolla. The gospel is not limited to a race or class. It's for everyone. Jesus's love and compassion is available for the person you hate the most as well. Think about it. We all have people that just irritate us, just annoy us, that have said and done things that have been so hurtful. And those people, according to us, are enemies. And to think, to be reminded that the gospel is for them as well. Jesus died for them and um, Jesus will extend mercy and grace to them if they decide to surrender their lives to him. And so the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. And so Jesus begins to confront and correct their racial bias and deeply rooted prejudice amongst his disciples. Look at verse five. It says, and he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said seven. And after hearing their response, Jesus gets to work. He then directed the crowd to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people and they set them before the crowd. And verse seven says, and they had a few small fish as well. And what did Jesus do with them? Having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they 
they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people and he sent them away. Jesus' disciples and the thousands that had travelled many miles for Jesus didn't leave disappointed, but they all left satisfied. They all left in awe of him. Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fish to such a degree that all of the people were satisfied and that there was a large number of leftovers. So many things I love about this story, but one of the things that stands out to me is that even though the disciples had doubts, Jesus still involves them in feeding the crowd. And this resonates with me. I'm sure it resonates with you as well, because I have doubts. I have many doubts. I often doubt God's faithfulness to provide for my needs and the needs of others. But despite my insecurities, despite my doubts, despite my lack of faith in God's faithfulness, God still involves me in his work. It's a reminder that as Jesus followers, we're not only recipients of God's love and kindness and grace, but we're also his vessels through whom Jesus's love is displayed to the world. Another thing that stands out um, is that Jesus, uh, God is Jesus, is absolutely generous. So um, if Jesus um, is God, right, that is what he came and clearly said that I am God. If Jesus is God, that must mean everything we see Jesus doing, uh, how Jesus relates to people. Right when he was here on this earth, is the way God relates to us. And so, another thing that stands out about who God is is that God is very generous, God is very selfless. And this was made known to me through a friend of mine who works at my favorite. Um, local coffee shop and I was I'm there a lot and I'm there because it's like my office um, and I love studying at this coffee shop and um, I was studying this passage and I showed it to her and I asked her what she thinks about Jesus and one of the things she said was that Jesus is very generous and I said, why? And she said, it's amazing to see that he had the means and the resources to help people. And he always did. He never was selfish. He never kept um, his power to himself. But instead, he used his power and his resources to help others. And she compared Jesus with a lot of the current um, um, influential wealthy people of our world who are very wealthy but rather than choosing to use their wealth to help people most of the time they use their wealth 
for themselves to benefit themselves and so what an amazing truth for us to discover about god that god is so selfless that god is always looking to use his power um, to benefit us look at verse 10 and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. And so after three days of intense ministry of teaching healings, the miraculous feeding of 4,000 Gentiles, Jesus leaves the region of the Decapolis and returns back to the Jewish region of Galilee. Dalmanutha is not known. It's a location never mentioned in ancient literature, but we know that it's located on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. So what's happening here is that Jesus, with his disciples, sail from the Decapolis, which is east of the Sea of Galilee, to Dalmanutha, which is located on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. And so as soon as he arrives in Dalmanutha, verse 11 lets us know that the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. So we just witnessed nothing but love, respect and appreciation for Jesus in a foreign Gentile land. Now, after returning to his region or country of origin, he encounters nothing but hostility. As soon as he arrives, he's confronted by a hostile group of Pharisees. Um, and the word here came in verse 1, um, um, in verse 11, that is, the Pharisees came and began, came, the word came in verse 11. In Greek, it's a military term used for when an army is deployed for battle. And so these religious leaders are back with a vengeance. They're equipped with ammo, their gloves are off, they're ready for battle and their only interest in Jesus is to do everything in their power to discredit him and plot his murder. So they begin to argue with him and they're not asking questions and politely inquiring about a particular topic of interest. No, they're here to pick a fight with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Uh, R.C. Sproul says that um, this word indicates that the Pharisees were out to berate Jesus and harass him, not merely have a polite debate. They were deeply hostile towards him. This hostility manifested itself in a demand for a sign to prove his divinity. And this request is odd. Right, it's odd because Jesus has just fed four thousand people, and at this point of Jesus's life, he's best known as a miracle worker. He's uh, best known for his signs and wonders. People were often confused and perplexed by his teachings and parables, but one thing was clear: Jesus was a miracle worker. Also notice that they're not just asking for a sign, but they're demanding he shows them a sign from heaven. On this, David Guzik says, he says, This demand for a special sign was an extreme example of the arrogance and pride of the Pharisees towards Jesus. Essentially, they said, You have done a lot of small-time miracles. 
come on up to the big leagues and really show us something. Sensing their ill intent, discerning their arrogance and pride, verse 12 says that Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. And this sigh was a deep-seated anger arising from the very pit of who he was, their blindness, their lack of respect their um, hardness of heart towards Jesus broke Jesus's heart he was sick and tired of this kind of respect this kind of response it was with these emotions that Jesus says this why does this generation seek a sign truly i say to you no sign will be given to this generation jesus refused to give them what they wanted he did this as an indictment indictment as a way to communicate his disdain for their attitude towards him they wanted him to perform a miracle to vindicate his deity but jesus refused because his miracles were not done with the intention of convincing hardened unbelievers instead jesus did miracles to show the power of god in the context of mercy because of this, Jesus wasted no time because of their hardness of heart, because of their constant berating of who he was. Jesus wasted no time with them. Verse 13 lets us know that he then he left them, got into the boat again and went to the other side. Jesus turned his back on them. Because of their hard heart, the Pharisees had missed it. The sign they were looking for was right in front of them. Jesus was the ultimate sign from heaven. He was the sign they should have been satisfied with. But because of their hardness of heart, nothing they had seen was enough to convince them of who he was. And so, in your life and in my life, Jesus has proven his faithfulness over and over again. Because of this, let's resist the temptation to doubt his faithfulness in our present day. Let's believe that he not only cares for our physical need, but also cares for our spiritual needs. In Christ, we'll never lack anything that's for our good. J.C. Ryle says this. He says, weak, infirm, corrupt, empty, as believers feel themselves, let them never despair while Jesus lives. In him, a boundless store of mercy and grace is laid up for the use of all his believing members and ready to be given to all who ask in prayer. And we can trust, we can trust that God cares because he went to great lengths to prove his love for us. John 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for these reminders. Thank you for reminding us that you care for our needs. Thank you for reminding us that you not only care for us, but you care and are 
pursuing um, different types of people all over the world. And thank you for reminding us that you are the sign. You are enough. Um, we, knowing you and being in a relationship with you, is enough and so may you be our treasure may we stop looking to you to do bigger and greater things may we simply be satisfied in who you are in your name we pray amen